Well, as we obviously spent a great deal of time thinking about last week, last week we celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a church, and in our time of study during the service, during the sermon, we uh, reflected on our purpose as a church, and we're going to finish that out today. Uh, so we have as our purpose statement, as a local church, we say that we exist for the glory of God, for the good of His people, and for Christ in the world. Um, last week we worked our way through uh, some aspects of what it means to live for the glory of God. Today we'll finish that out and then speak about living uh, for the good of His people and for Christ in the world. Uh, but but we'll, we'll say this just to set the context for speaking about these things. Uh, first, and we, we mentioned this at more length last week, but we, we want to always be mindful of the fact uh, that reminders are very important to us in the Christian life. Uh, so we set the, the tone of our study last time by saying probably the things that we'll talk about as we consider our purpose as a local church are not new truths for us, uh, but they're actually truths that we've had the opportunity to think about and sit with for some time in our Christian life. Um, however, that doesn't mean that we move beyond needing them. Uh, so that's where we brought in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes to the church and he says, I will always remind you about these things. So these gospel truths about Jesus that he's speaking about. Peter says, I will always remind you about these things. And then he gives these two qualifications. Even though you know them and are established in them. So not only do you know these things I'm going to talk to you about, Peter says, but you're actually you're growing up in these things fairly well. However, he says, I'm not ever going to stop talking about them. And we need to recognize the place of reminders in our Christian life in that way, that there's a, there is a central need we have, not least of all when we talk about our purpose as a local church and as individual members of it, our purpose as Christian believers, there is a central need we have to be reminded of the main things and how that fits within an understanding of the gospel and all of that. So uh, to start out with, we need to be reminded more often than we need to be instructed. We talked about that quote last time. So that kind of guides our study this morning. Secondly, we also just need to say what is, on the one hand, blatantly obvious, but we need to say it. purpose is important. Purpose is important to us. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he made the statement that the crowning fortune of a man is to be born to some pursuit which finds him employment and happiness whether it be to make baskets or broadswords or canals or statues or songs. But the crowning fortune of a man, he says, is to be born into some pursuit that, that gives him something to do and gives him joy in doing that. We understand just as a general revelation aspect of what it means to be humans, the Lord has put into us the need for purpose. And of course, the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus comes, He remakes us in the image of, in the image of God, and in the remaking of us, in the renewing of us, in the saving of us, we are remade and given this great purpose that exists now as we seek to follow Him in the whole of our life. And, 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 that, and that purpose infuses the totality of our life with meaning. Um, it, it, it's purpose that knowing God brings to us, both corporately as a church and individually as members of it, um, it infused, whether we're speaking about suffering and illness, whether we're speaking about the jobs we're doing, whether we're speaking about the classroom environment we're engaged in, the relationships we have, all of that is infused with purpose uh, because we are doing everything we do ultimately uh, with an eye to obeying the Lord and seeking, seeking His glory and, and good plan in those things. Uh, and so what we saw last week was that, that purpose is clarified for us. In particular, we took these passages from Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 
just to see how that's lined out. So in Ephesians 1, we read uh, verses 3 to 14, and we saw that Ephesians 1 is part of uh, Paul's introduction to this letter for the church, for the church at Ephesus. Uh, but in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, there's a section there where Paul speaks about salvation. He, he speaks, uh, for example, uh, beginning, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the, heavenly, uh, in the heavens in Christ. And, and, and why has he done this? Well, in him we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So Ephesians chapter 1 is a passage about salvation. And what does Paul say there is the purpose of God in saving us. Well, we're saved to the praise of his glory. And so we recognize that, that Ephesians 1 is about salvation, and it is about salvation purpose, saved to the praise of God's glory. We get into Ephesians 2, and we discover something very similar, and that Ephesians 2 is also about salvation, like we just heard read. So Ephesians 2 begins, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what happened? Well, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. So there's salvation. We're dead, lost in our transgressions and sin. Uh, and what does God do? Well, in grace, he comes and he makes us alive in Christ. And why has he done that? Well, he's done that because, as Paul says in verse 10, we are God's workmanship now created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so just like Ephesians 1 is about salvation, so is Ephesians 2. And in each of those sections, they give us purpose. God has saved us to live for something. In Ephesians 1, we're saved to live for his glory, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 2, Paul speaks about us being saved to live, to walk in these good works that God has prepared for us. And as we parse that out with our Bibles open, we recognize that those good works typically fall in those two big main categories. The good works of living for the good of God's people and the good works of living for Christ in the world. And so that's how, we, that's how we break out the purpose statement that we speak about there. Um, but, but as we put all of those things together, that's where we, where we began last week, speaking about how, how we need to begin by thinking about living for God's glory, to the praise of His glory. This is why we've been saved. And so last time we looked at the Hebrew word, this translated glory, and saw that its root, the root of that word is connected to the notion of something being weighty. And so to begin with, if we say that we've been saved to live for the glory of God, rather than that just be a, a merely a trite, pious, uh, religious-sounding thing for us to say, it's actually infused with a great deal of meaning in that we are now thinking about how we live our lives in totality to reflect something of the weighty worth of who God is. Is what I'm doing in this situation showing something of how worthy God is, how valuable, how honorable He is, or is it doing something different? Well, we're, we're called, we're saved uh, from pursuing things that are contrary to God's glory to living for God's glory. And, and, and how do we do that? Well, well there, there, are, there are countless ways, really, in which we can live for God's glory, so much so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. So you go out for lunch after church today, and there's an aspect of the fact that as you, as you pray for your meal and praise God for the provision of the meal and maybe the friends you're sharing it with, you're actually eating that meal to the glory of God, as well as everything else you're going to do in your week as you offer, as you offer yourself to the Lord as His servant. Um, and so this purpose pervades all of our life, whether it be our work, our family life, our personal and private thoughts, the spending of our money, a trip to the coast, a trip to the emergency room. Right? All we do, we do for the glory of God. We think about His weighty worth in these things. And so to help work out some practical categories, 
Um, last week, we worked through two main ways in which we can live for God's glory. And we talked about uh, glorifying God in our adoration of Him. And we also talked about glorifying God in our satisfaction in Him. This week, what we're going to do, uh, before we move on to the more horizontal aspect of our purpose, is we're going to unpack just two more categories for how we can live uh, for the glory of God. And the first of those two categories is, this is a way we can glorify God, by of joyful obedience to Him. So this is a way we can glorify God, by living out a life of joyful obedience to Him. In other words, we display how worthy God is. We display the weighty worth of God as we obey His Word, as we obey what He says. Um, now, in, in saying that, we also always want to keep in mind the gospel order of things. Why, why do we engage in a life of obedience? We spent a lot of time last week on this, but we never want to forget. We engage in this life of obedience, not ultimately to gain God's favor, but, we ha- but because we have God's favor. And we always want to make sure that's in, the, that's in the proper order. We'll talk a little bit about Galatians a little later on today. And Paul's going to have some very direct commands to the church at Galatia. But the, the, the church is going to receive those commands in the second half of Paul's letter because in the first half of Paul's letter, he's saying to them, don't you know you're completely saved through what Jesus alone has done? You're completely saved. And so how do we live in light of the fact we're completely saved? Well, we live this life of obedience, not to get the benefits of the gospel, but because God has granted out of grace, so not based on our merit, but out of his kindness, he's granted us the grace of the gospel. So much so, even, even in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, which we read, but Paul says uh, that, that God has already raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So when Paul has a framework for these Christian believers, he's viewing them, in a sense, in as good as resurrected. That This is just what's true about them. You're, you're, you're with Christ now in the heavenly places in one sense. You're secured with Him. And so what do we do in light of that? Well, we live out a life that responds to the grace given, not one seeking to earn grace not yet achieved. Right? And so that gospel order is very important, not least of all when we start talking about obedience. Um, so with that... With that said again, uh, let, let's talk about glorifying God for just a few minutes here, uh, partly in terms of exercising a life of obedience to Him. Now, uh, obedience, it means restriction. That's, ju- that's just what it means. Uh, it means to constrain our actions, to constrain my actions based on the authoritative directives of another. Right? It means compliance with an order. Obedience means submission to the authority of another. Um, And because of our fallen sinful hearts, or I could put this a little more carefully, because of my fallen sinful heart, I don't like that. I want to belong to myself. I want to be in charge of myself. And that's because somewhere in the depths of my naturally foolish center of being, I'm actually arrogant enough to think that what I want is best. But it's not. When we obey the living God, we are saying with our lives, your way is the way that's not only of highest esteem and of greatest worth, you are the glorious one, but we're also saying in our obedience that the restrictions you place upon me by your word, through your design, are the best possible restrictions I could ever submit myself to. 
This is the way of life for me. So the restrictions that you place upon me don't bring me away from life like I tend to think they might, but instead they constrain me to the path of life. Uh, as, as humans, we just like to think our way is, is best. We're, we're like a fish who thinks true freedom would be outside the constraints of the water. But of course, there's death for the fish on the shore. We're like the train that thinks real freedom is going to be found when it can jump the tracks and go through the field as it pleases. But of course, disaster awaits the train off the tracks. And we're like, we're like a musician who might long for the total freedom to play apart from any bars and chords and scales uh, to make a melody that's completely free from any restrictions. Only if, if music were to be played that way, it would only be grating noise. Um, and so what we have to understand is we glorify God by saying the constraints that you put upon our lives, they are restrictions, but they are not ultimately there for me to end in a, in a languishing, deadened, fun-limited position, but they are actually flourishing restraints that you place upon us with your word. So, so we glorify God when we say the constraints that you put upon our lives aren't languishing, but instead they're actually flourishing. And I mean, we can, we can apply this in so many different ways. Uh, just, to, just to make it as, maybe as, as plain and big as possible, why don't we just apply this to sex, money, and politics? Okay. So when we confess that the realm of sexual engagement is restrained to God's design in marriage, we're not limiting our pleasure, but instead we're pursuing the joyful fullness of what God intended the sexual relationship to be and we're avoiding the damaging sorrow that comes from contrary expressions of that. Okay? We're, we're obedient, and we, and we engage in sexuality according to God's way, and life is found there. And as we live in that way, we're actually saying, Lord, your way is the way of weighty worth. This is the worthy way, and we're bringing glory to Him in that. Or if we think about money, when we give of our money freely and sacrificially and joyfully compelled by God's free gift of His own Son to us, when we give in faith as we're commanded to do, we're not destroying our financial future or our monthly budget, but we're constraining our lives to live by the promise of God's assured supply. He owns the gold in all the mines. We're obedient and we give and life is there. So there's, there's flourishing restraints in that. And as we're restrained by those commands, we're saying to the Lord, your way is the weighty way. It's worth more than the way I might otherwise choose. It's glorifying God. Or in politics, when we vote responsibly, and at the same time when we say, whoever sits in the big office with the big fancy chairs, ultimately it is still Jesus who's king. When we say Jesus is king rather than my hope uh, being ultimately affected by the November ballot, we are obeying what God says. Right? Do not put your trust in princes and the son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day his plans perish, Psalm 146. Right? Don't put your trust in princes. When we obey the Lord in the context of our ultimate political hope, we will not find ourselves wallowing though the earth gives way, instead, through God's flourishing restraints, by obeying Him, by placing our ultimate hope in King Jesus, we will find ourselves renewed because life is there in Christ the better King, and we'll even find renewed purpose in the context of the life He's called us to live now under the human rulers of our own day. And so all of this displays God's weighty worth. We glorify God in our obedience to Him. And so there's the, the children's song that you might you might know, but it, it's, it's profoundly filled with truth, which goes when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word. What a glory He sheds on our way. 
When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And then you know the chorus, how it goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The constraints of God's word to us bring us to a place of flourishing joy. And we do that not because we hope to get God's favor, but we do that because his favor means life for us, and we see that. If he would not spare his own son for us, why would he ever call us to do something that would be contrary to life for us? So we obey, and in so doing, we glorify him. We say with our lives as a church and as individual members of it, we say, your way, O Lord, is the highest, the weightiest, the most honorable. We will walk we will walk with the Lord in the light of your word, whether it's sex, money, or politics, or areas of personal attitude, or, or, or areas of personal action or inaction, whatever it is. And so, and so we, just, we just check ourselves by this. Do, do I need to do some renewed obeying? You need to do some renewed obeying. Areas where uh, maybe that's fallen to the side a bit, and I need to bring that back to center. What does God say about this matter in my life? It's a good question for us to ask individually. And it's an important question for us to ask corporately as a church. How are we doing with obeying? This is one of the reasons why a regular diet of expository preaching is so important for us. I mean, last week and this week, we're doing topical preaching, so forgiveness for these two. But this is why a regular diet of expository preaching is so important, because rather than having the preacher decide, oh, we'll go here this week, we'll go there this week, we'll go here this week, rather than that, we're actually saying the way the Lord has put His Word together, we're going to take that, we're going to walk through it, coming through passages even that can be a bit difficult, because we need the whole counsel of God if we're going to be holy, completely obedient people. That's why this is so important for us, which is what Paul's getting at at the, at the end of Romans. When he actually, in his benediction, he talks about how the preaching of Christ from the prophets, he actually talks about the preaching of Christ from the Old Testament, what does it do? It brings about the obedience of faith. That's why as a local church, we're always going to be elevating the expository preaching of God's word because that's what helps work obedience in our heart. So we glorify God in, in what we talked about last week, our adoration of him and our satisfaction in him. We also glorify God in our joyful obedience to him. And then uh, one more aspect of glorifying God, we'll, we'll say this, we glorify God in our humble dependence upon him. Um, we're needy people. I'm needy, you're needy. Peter says in his first letter, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. We are needy, and as we come before God and say we're needy, and as we properly posture before uh, him in that way, we actually bring him honor and glory, because we, we need God to provide for us materially daily, and we say that you're the one who's of great weight and worth, and we need you for these daily requirements that we have. We need God to save our kids. We can't do it. We need God to keep us in the way of holiness. We feel our weakness. We need God to renew us in a love for what is good and true and right. We know how we can tend to tip toward what is false. We need His renewal. We need God to revisit our hearts by His Holy Spirit with little personal mini-revivals, rekindling our deep affection for Jesus. We need that on a personal level. And obviously, we know we need this at a, at a, at a level just in our city alone. We need God to visit our city by His Holy Spirit with an extraordinary expression of grace and draw many people who are so far from Him to Him as we once were. 
We need people to be able to see that the king of the kingdom is of God is Jesus and they must trust in him and be saved. And we and we are needy to God for that work to be done. The, the, the great upside down truth of the gospel is that it's actually not in our strength that we glorify God, but it is precisely in our neediness that we live for the honor of his great worth, which is a really wonderful truth if we just let that sink in. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is not you glorify God by proving how strong you are. I mean, that, that's what we tend toward is if I really want to bring this person honor, maybe somebody who's had a big effect in my life, what do I want to do? I want to show them that I'm, I'm pulling myself up. I'm getting it together. I'm the one who's really doing it and, and I want to bring them honor in that way. The good news of the gospel is first and foremost, we do not glorify God by proving how strong we are. Instead, we glorify God by humbly acknowledging how needy we are, which is just a wonderful truth to sit with. I exalt the greatness of God by saying, my goodness, I am in a posture of great need. I'm, I'm in a posture of great need. And we are needy as a church. We're needy as individual members of it. And so instead of that being a discouragement to us, it's actually some of the greatest fuel for our purpose that we have. Our theme is I'm needy, which keeps us on point with the fact that we're constantly saying, don't look at me, don't look at us. Look at him. Look at Jesus, who's all powerful, all loving, all just, all faithful. And he will make perfect provision for your needs if you will turn to him and say, I yield to you, Lord Jesus, as king. And so, and so we glorify God in our adoration of him, in our satisfaction in him, in our obedience to him. And we glorify God in our weakness. When we say, I just need you to be the one who provides for me. When we say, we just need you to be the one who provides for me. We do not honor God by saying, I am so strong, O Lord, I will be proving myself on my own today. No. We wake up in the morning and we say, O Lord, I need help. George MacDonald has that wonderful quote where he says, the only prayer we ever really pray is help. Right? And that's what we do as Christian believers and we glorify God as we do that. So, put all that together. We, we have been saved to the praise of his glory. Those are just some practical categories we can think about in terms of our purpose. And now let's move from our, from our vertical purpose of being saved to glorify God more to the horizontal plane where we speak about the fact that we've been saved to walk in the good works that the Lord has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Um, so, so there's good to do. That's what Paul is saying in, in Ephesians 2 verse 10. And, and this is our purpose having been reconciled to God uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. And again, as the scriptures break down those good works, we have, we have those two areas. Uh, first being, we exist for the good of God's people. Right? So for example, uh, in, in Galatians 6, Paul says this. He says, let us not get tired of doing good. Ever get tired of doing good? Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Just appreciate the pastoral honesty. Why does Paul have to say that? Because we get tired doing good and we want to give up. But he's giving this encouragement and he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So, so we have work for the good of all to do. And we'll talk about that as it relates to the world around us here in just a moment. But Paul does have an emphasis here. And then he says, let's work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. In other words, as Christian believers, we have a special priority 
for working for the good of our fellow Christians. Right? This is part of our purpose. We exist for the good of God's people. So let's think, think on that just a little bit. And that we exist for the good of God's people. How does that work out practically? Or to use Derek Kidner's uh, language when he's writing his commentary on the proverb. He says, how do we put this in working clothes? Right? Well, again, there's lots we can say here. We'll just explore a few practical ways we can exist for the good of God's people. Uh, one way we can fulfill our purpose in this, in this sense is to exercise selfless concern for one another. Right? This, is a, this is a love in action thing. Um, in Acts chapter 2, for example, we read that all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, uh, contrary to some views throughout the history of Christianity, this is not a passage that calls for communal living. Right? A couple chapters over in Acts, Peter makes it very clear to Ananias and Sapphira, they were, they were free just to keep their fields. Right? Right? Selling possessions is not a call to communal living, but what's here in Acts 2 is a picture of believers exercising sacrificial concern for other believers. I have material means and a fellow believer is in a place of acute need and so I will do with less so that they may be helped. Right? That, that, that's a priority for me, for us as a church, our purpose together as God's people. And in our Western world, it's, it's not quite as often that we feel the, the weight of this maybe as practically as we could even just where we live. But, but as we have our eyes open to it, it's amazing how God's good works that He prepares for us do appear before us. Right? So, so we ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Even in our prayer life, we include these kind of requests. Is there a need in the body of Christ that I could be aware of, that I could alleviate through sacrificial engagement in some way? In, in a way that, that maybe could be costly? How could I, how could you bring help? This is part of what it means to live for the good of God's people, that selfless concern for others in the body of Christ. And then we can also live for the good of God's people through our loving attitudes toward our fellow believers. Of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is full of this as its primary theme. Um, and, and you all do this so well as, as Christ Church. I'm so thankful for it. But again, these are good reminders. And one, one place that provides a very helpful reminder is is what Paul says to the Colossian believers in chapter 3 of his letter to them, uh, where we have a great section on what it looks like to live life as we're remade in the image of Christ. That's what Colossians 3 is giving us. And one of the things Paul says as he's speaking to the corporate local church about what it looks like to put on love, which binds everything together, as we're doing that, he says, bear with one another and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against another which is really quite the statement, just as we think about a very practical way we can be exercising loving attitudes toward one another. Paul doesn't say, if you're offended, make sure you air the grievance and make sure it's completely resolved before you're willing to move on. He doesn't say that. He says, when you're offended by a fellow believer, there are two main ways to interact with your brother and sister, at Christ, or brother or sister in Christ at that point. Two main ways. Bear with it and forgive it. In other words, put up with it and quit counting it against them. It's so countercultural in the church to live like to, to, to live this way, to, to have to have this as as a as a as a big aspect of who we are as a church. Can you imagine if if one day, you know, here we are down the road, we're in the new building, everything's up, and we decide we're gonna put a big banner about what we're really about. 
What are we really about? And we decided to make that banner say, we've been saved by Jesus to put up with each other. But that's really what Paul is getting at here with this selfless concern. It's easy to get our purpose to love confused with making sure we always have everything set the right way around with one another. How much energy and angst can we spend? I'm not saying you do, you don't. This is preventative medicine. But, but how much energy and angst can we be prone to spend on thinking about how the other person needs to do something right by me or right in that situation and until they do? Huh. But what does the gospel call, call, call us to do? Paul says, set your renewed in the image of Christ energy to the task of putting up with each other and not counting transgressions against them. Not counting offenses against them. This is part of how we live for the good of God's people. It presumes we will offend each other. It's like Galatians presumes we're going to get tired while we're doing good. This presumes we're going to live lives offending each other in local community together. And it presumes that we will actively be looking forward to putting up with that kind of thing. So we exist for the good of God's people as we exercise sacrificial concern for one another and as we engage in loving attitudes toward one another, seeking to forbear and forgive and these kinds of things. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we also live for the good of God's people as we bear one another's burdens. And this is, this is obviously these things are all intertwined, but this is an extension, I suppose, of sacrificial concern. Uh, but back to Galatians 6, Paul says to the church there, he says, carry one another's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So the law of Christ, the, the way that Christ has saved and empowered us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to live, we fulfill that purpose as we, as we bear one another's burdens in the church. Uh, li listen to how Tim Keller spoke to this. Just read you this excerpt of something he wrote about, about bearing burdens. Listen to this. He says, these burdens can be a simple responsibility like raising a child or renovating a living space. Or they can be a difficulty, a problem. By characterizing the responsibilities and problems of life as burdens, Paul very vividly and practically teaches how a Christian relates. You cannot help with a burden unless you come very close to the burdened person. Standing virtually in their shoes and putting your own strength under the burden so its weight is distributed on both of you lightening the load of the other. So in the same way, a Christian must listen and understand and physically, emotionally, spiritually take up some of the burden with the other person. And we can feel our need for this, uh, both as recipients of help and as those who offer help. Who can I come close to? Who can you come close to and put your own strength under the weight that they're bearing right now? This is one of those things that we can be sure the Lord will make clear as we pray for direction. Oh, Lord, who, who can I help today in this way? Who can I help shoulder a burden for in this way? We can, we can have no doubt the Lord will answer that prayer. And then we offer another prayer as well. Oh, Lord, please bring somebody along to help shoulder this burden that I'm, that I'm carrying. I feel the weight and it's heavy and I, I know my strength is weak and I can't hold this up alone. And I know you give your people to help and I need that kind of help. So we live for the good of God's people as we bear one another's burdens. Um, and then we'll just say one more thing. We live for the good of God's people as we extend gospel encouragement to them. You know, part of why we don't forsake assembling together, Hebrews chapter 10 says, is that we need the encouragement of the fellowship of God's people around us to keep us going in, in all of these things that we've been talking about. Selfless concern, loving attitudes, bearing burdens, all living for the glory of God. We need the encouragement that we offer to one another. Um, and we also need that encouragement to come in ways that can be 
lovingly painful at times? You know, I, I notice somebody might come and say to me that you have been more concerned for your own comfort lately in a way that removes you from caring for those around you. Or I notice the attitude uh, that, you're, that you're displaying is reflecting more hardness than it is forbearance, these kinds of things. We, we need the people of God around us. Uh, the Lord uses us all as ministers in one another's lives to keep us looking to Jesus and serving in the ways that he's called us to live. And then returning to Jesus when we tend, to, uh, tend towards uh, traveling off of that path. We need those gentle and kind and uh, loving encouragements uh, to return to the way of life. And so this is, this is one of those reasons that home group is important for us. Corporate worship on Sunday is important for us. We want to emphasize what it means to, to get together informally with one another. We need these kinds of relationships because this is what the Lord uses uh, to maintain us. And this is part of our own purpose to live out as we live for the good of God's people around us. Um, so that's that's where we'll leave that one. Living for the good of God's people. Uh, we'll just say one here, th- one more thing here as we as we come to an end about about living for Christ in the world. We live for the glory of God, for the good of His people, for Christ in the world. Um, in John 17, Jesus prays for His followers, and He says to the Father, "I pray that you do not take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one." Oftentimes, as Christians. Uh, down through history, this has been true. We can, we can recoil from the world thinking that it is a sphere that will ultimately corrupt us and get us. Right? But actually, for this we have Christ. Right? The world is the very sphere in which Christ has prayed for our safety. He doesn't pray for our safety as we disengage from the world. There's no safety in hiding from the world around us. Jesus has saved us completely, and Jesus has prayed for us specifically to be in the world for him and to be preserved by God as we are in the world for him. And so what does this mean? Well, it means so many things. Um, Jesus makes it clear in other pictures he gives, doesn't it? On the one hand, it means that we're called to be light in the world for Jesus. He speaks about how we're a city on a hill that's not to be hidden, or we're like a candle that's not to be covered. Our, our lives are to shine in such a way that a world that's lost in darkness and sin is illuminated with the truth of the good news about Jesus through the lives of believers who live out the good news about Jesus. Our lives are to display and declare that in Christ, reconciliation from darkness and sin's curse is found. All of these kinds of, His resurrection is victorious. Our lives are to display those kinds of things. So that means as we shine as lights, our marriages are lights for the watching world. As we're steadfast and sacrificial in in our love for our spouses instead of consumeristic in our love for our spouse, the light of Christ is displayed in that and we're living for Christ in the world. The way we conduct ourselves in the classroom at school shines as a light for Jesus. As we obey the teachers, as we seek out the lonely student and show kindness to them, as we exercise self-control when provoked, as we as we have those those conversations that we hope for, where we can say to a friend, Have you ever heard about Jesus? Do you know anything about you? Could I tell you something about Jesus? We shine as a light in that way. And it's not just that we're a light in the world, but but we're in the world for Christ as his instrument of preservation. Jesus uses that salt metaphor where, where, where salt was used in the ancient world as a preservative. We're salt and light, Jesus says. So we're in the world 
in such a way that brings a preserving benefit, a sustaining influence to our world around us. In fact, this gives great value to our work. The labors that we engage in help continue to sustain the world while, as Paul says, this is still the day of salvation. This is still the day of salvation. The world goes on. The gospel message goes out. And in that time, the world needs sustaining. The provision in, in, in major social ways, the provision in, in minor relational ways, the provision in educational ways, all of these kinds of things we engage in full-heartedly as Christian believers knowing that the Lord has put us in the world not only to shine as a beacon of, of light for the gospel truth, but we're going on in life contributing to the world around us, helping to preserve the world around us as this is still day, the day of salvation. The gospel is going out. There will come a time when the world as we know it draws to a close. Jesus will return. He will make all things new. But that day is not today. Today is still the day of salvation. And so we engage in the world in a way that promotes the things that make the world go around. And as we do, we live, like Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3, we live with wisdom toward outsiders. We live wise lives in such a way that draw people out to ask questions why is your life going like it is? Why in the midst of that hardship is your marriage still intact? Why as you go through that tumultuous time can you still be steady and sure instead of totally at your wit's end? Why do you have this group of people that show up and support you when you're going through this? I'm, I'm so isolated over here. As we live with wisdom, as the world around us watches, we actually do both preserve and shine a light on the glories of what Jesus has, has provided for us, which is just interesting when Paul prays that way at the end of Colossians, where he prays for himself and the fellow ministers there, that they would uh, speak the word as they're supposed to speak. And then he tells the Christian believers to pray that you'll live uh, with wisdom toward outsiders so that they'll have these opportunities. We're not all called to be Apostle Paul traveling the world evangelists. Most of us are just called to be faithful Christian believers bringing light, bringing preservative grace to the sphere in which the Lord has put us down in the world. And there's great purpose and there's great, and there's great uh, goodness in that. This is, what, this is what we've been saved to do. We could do so much more on that, but let me just read you this quote. I always read it in our, member, in our prospective members class, but D.A. Carson says this. He says, our task as believers is to be out with the gospel, prepared to speak about Jesus and demonstrate the kind of compassion He had on us, illuminate a sin-darkened world by words spoken and deeds done in righteousness. And so as a church, that, that's, what we, that's what we speak to do. We seek to orient ourselves um, by, by the reality that the Lord has put us down in the world purposefully. And He's put us in the places we're in purposefully. It's not by accident we live where we live and we work where we work and we sit in the classroom we sit in, 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 in which we sit. These are God's purposes for us, and we want to extend the light and preserving power of Christ in those places. And so we put all this together. Of course, there's so much more on all of these we could say, but we can sum it up by saying we live in response to salvation because he saved us for the glory of God, for the good of his people, and for Christ in the world. And this just helps remind us of that framework that comes to us through his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us in these things and that we would be wise in our dealings, that we would be a light uh, for Christ in the world around us, that we would bear one another's burdens, that in all these things we would elevate uh, the glory of your holy name with our daily lives and our corporate life as a church. We pray that you would uh, continue to help us in this and correct us when we need correcting and uh, keep us on your path of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.